Thanks for joining us for our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're currently in our series, Fresh Fruit, where we are diving into the fruit of the Spirit. As a believer, the fruit of the Spirit should be coming out of our lives. It should be shown in all that we say and do. Just as when you see an apple tree, you see apples on it. As a Christian, others should see you and see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. They should see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They should see Jesus in us. Our vertical relationship with God must be lived out in our horizontal relationships with others. So let's jump in together to this week's message of fresh fruit. We're so glad you're here. Well, we wanted to end on a high note. So we've got really great stories, and and you have them too. Um, The stories in your life where you were completely out of control in the moment or you had no self-control to speak of because it happens to all of us. Um, Good morning. My name is Nick Allen, and I get the privilege of being the campus pastor of this location of Rolling Hills. Um, And it's a privilege. This has been literally probably one of my very favorite series of messages that we've done in the life of our church. And I am excited about the one that's coming, but today we're concluding a nine-week series on the fruits of the Spirit. And even if this is your very first time joining us or the only time in the last nine weeks that you were able to be here in person for this, I think that it was probably just the right one because we're going to talk about self-control. There's no judgment here, um, but that is what we're diving into because we've talked about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And now we land on the fruit of the spirit of self-control. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 lists all those things for us. And then it says, against these things, there is no law. There's no accusation. There's no temper. There's nothing that we can face that would come when we live out these virtues like Christ. Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you that as a parent was parenting small children at the time, we got our kids to memorize this verse. Um, tell me you're a pastor without telling me you're a pastor. We make our kids memorize scripture. Okay, so here we go. Like, and whenever they were exhibiting some sort of behavior that needed a slight course correction, we would say, name the fruits of the Spirit. And they would say, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we would respond by saying, which one do you need the most right now? And they would often respond, self-control, because they understood in the moment that that's what they were lacking, but what they didn't understand. And it's not because they were kids, because you and I are in the same boat. We often don't understand what it will take to actually get to that level of being a person who can be described as able to control themselves. As a church staff, once a month we gather together with all of the staff teams from all of the campuses of Rolling Hills, and it's so much fun to see everybody. Weeks before we do that, um, one of the administrators will send out a reminder to fill out the nomination form, because this is how we do employee of the month. There's always some sort of virtue or some sort of attribute that we're highlighting, and for an entire calendar year of nine months, we went through the fruits of the Spirit. So when we got to love, you had to nominate someone on our staff team who was really loving. When it got to joy, somebody that was filled with joy, somebody that was patient. But we got to self-control, and the campus pastor from Columbia is actually the one who won. So we come into staff meeting, and they put all the names on the screen of people who've been nominated as somebody who exhibited self-control or somebody who had that virtue, and then they draw a name out of the hat to win a prize. And it's so exciting. Tell me you're on a church staff without telling me you're on a church staff. We do Employee of the Month by biblical values. Okay, so here we are, and they draw out his name. And then, if you're ever the winner, they proceed to read out loud what the— not like. Nominators are anonymous, but they read out loud whatever the person said. And so we get to the nomination for T. Lusk, who wins the Staff Employee of the Month Award for being the person who exhibited the most self-control on our team. And it literally said this, I saw T. walk by a plate of cookies and he didn't take one. <laughs> like usually it's that whole thing of like, oh, 
Anna Townsend, she's just so loving and she's always kind and compassionate and caring to people in need or, oh, it's somebody who's so faithful or so gentle or somebody who just goes above and beyond in kindness. T's literally read, I saw him walk by a tray of cookies once and he did not take one. And so we've laughed at that and said that T should be the one that's preaching this message at all of our campuses. And I did, believe you not, tried to farm it out to somebody else who could do a much better job representing the biblical value of self-control today. But here I sit, stand, sit, same thing, and talking about what this means in our lives. I've wondered this week why self-control would be mentioned last. Like, I can totally get on board with the idea that love is first. Like, I can totally understand that Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, like, here we go, like, this idea of love being the most important value. Like love being the thing that's supreme. He writes in 1 Corinthians that if you don't have it, you're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He literally writes down that faith, hope, and love are the only thing that remains, but the greatest of all of those things is love. And if love is greater than faith and hope, then I can look at all of these things and say, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, just like Beyonce said, is somehow on top of all of the rest of those. And so we've got this picture of love, and I'm looking at it and trying to figure out what that means for the rest of them. And so I decided to write them down like this, like we've got joy. I'm really nervous about my spelling. That was, a, that was an easy one. Peace, patience, kindness. And it's easy to see why being a person who lives out love is going to be somebody that's full of joy and able to bring peace and somehow patient in the middle of difficult circumstances and, and able to offer kindness to the world. Like somebody who's uh, goodness, like kind, goodness, that's one that we want to make sure that we emulate, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. Like, it's easy to see why every single one of these has to be born out of love. Because if they're not born out of love, then that means they're born out of some kind of, like, obligation. And somebody's forcing you to behave in these ways. And that's not necessarily love. Or maybe they're fostered out of some sort of selfish manipulation. And you want to, like, I'm going to be kind, but I'm only being kind so that I can get what I want as a result. Like, those things aren't love. Like, if I'm being a person that brings joy and offers peace and responds in patience, or somebody who's noted as good or kind or faithful or gentle, if those things aren't born out of love, then they're not authentic. They're not genuine, and they're not Christ-like. But to me, self-control is the one that seems to undergird all of them. Because you can have all of these things being born out of love. But if they're not undergirded by self-control, it looks like a sandwich. Kind of makes me hungry. All of these things coming from love makes them genuinely Christ-like. But all of these things being supported by self-control makes them actually possible. Because without some sort of level of self-control in our lives, all of these things are just good ideas, but they never actually come to fruition in our lives. And they're never actually the things that somebody can use to describe us. Because without self-control, I will never respond to, to people with kindness and patience when things don't go my way. 
without self-control, I can't look at the damaged world that we live in and bring joy and peace in response to those things. And without some level of self-control, I'll never walk a life of faithfulness like Scripture describes for me to walk. And so we end up with the fruits of the Spirit born out of love, but supported by the idea of you and I be a people who can literally control ourselves. The biblical definition of it, if you look up the Greek word that's translated as self-control in our English Bibles, it literally says the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. And this is not limited to, but it does include all those R-rated things that go on in our heads, let's just be honest. But it's somebody who's able to control their impulses. Somebody who's able to literally control those aspects of their life. And we want to be those kinds of people, those people that are able to govern those things about ourselves. And so Peter, the apostle of Jesus, who was sometimes not very under his own self-control, writes a letter to dispersed Christians all over the Roman Empire who are literally being persecuted for their faith. They have heard of believers in Jesus Christ being burned at the stake or fed to lions. They know that these are dangerous circumstances and situations that they're walking in. He writes to dispersed Christians all over the Roman Empire, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then it says, be alert. That's the Greek word, Gregoreo. Like, if anybody's named Greg in here, your name means watch out. That's good. I'm glad for that. Like, to watch, to give strict attention. Like, be alert. Be ready for what the world throws out you and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. I'll say this, it's in your notes this morning if you're a person that likes to follow along and write things down in blanks because it helps you recall them later. Self-control is an esteemed value. It's great until history, not just world history, but my own personal history reveals that my greatest problems come when I'm in charge. Like my greatest, like it's great to say I want to be a person of self-control. The problem is whenever I'm in control, things tend to go haywire. Things tend to not go the way that they should because here's the deal. I'm not always alert and I'm not always sober. That came out wrong. Okay, I'm I'm not always calm. I'm not always cool. I'm not always alert. It, It literally means collected in spirit. It means calm. It means dispassionate. It means circumstance. Like I'm not always that way. Even to people who don't know me well and assume that I should be, my name was not on the list of nominees for people who are self-controlled when we did employee of the month for Rolling Hills. Like it's not something that I am, but it is something that I aspire to be. I'm not always those things. So it is an esteemed value until you realize that whenever I'm in charge, that's when things tend to go haywire. Left in charge of things, I will find a way to make a mess. So what if the key is for me not to be in charge? In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells, well, he tells stories all the time. They're called parables, and they're literally like illustrations of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And he spoke in terms that people of his day and age could understand. In Matthew 25, he tells a story of a master who's getting ready to go on a long trip, and he gives his servants bags of gold. This is not something that I can relate to. Like nobody has literally ever left to go on a long trip and said, Nick, I want to give you some bags of gold. But I'm, I'm really dialing it in hard here to make sure that I understand Scripture This particular master gives one servant five bags of gold, one servant two bags of gold. Like that guy is immediately jealous of the first guy. 
And then one servant gets one bag of gold. Now, after the journey was over, he comes back and he finds out that the fellow that he gave five bags of gold to has multiplied it, literally doubled it, and presents to him 10 bags of gold. The guy who got two bags of gold, he multiplies it, he invests it, he gets two bags back. And this guy has literally doubled it too. And so Jesus looks at both of those servants, the master in the story, and says, well done, you are good and faithful. The last guy who only got one bag of gold literally buries it into the ground and waits for the master to come back so that he can present him with the bag of gold that he initially provided. And the master looks at him and says, you are wicked and you are lazy. And he describes the kingdom of God as a master who leaves and goes on a trip leaving bags of gold for his servants. And you might have to do some mental Olympics to put yourself in that story the way that I do. In a couple of weeks in the next series, we're actually going to revisit that story along with some of the other parables that Jesus talked about in Matthew 25 again. But here's the deal today. We may have to do some mental Olympics to place ourselves in the story and to understand what it means for us to be a part of the kingdom of God because a master went on a trip and left some bags of gold with his servants. And our squad goal is that we always want to be like the first two guys, the ones who invested it and multiplied it and presented back to their master even more than what he had originally. We want to be the ones who are marked good and faithful. And time and time again, we're often the ones who are regarded wicked and lazy. It's okay, we're sinners, right? But no matter how many avenues and angles I look at this particular story, guess who I never am in it? The master. Like I can be servant number one or servant number two, and those are on my very best days. I can be servant number three, and that happens way more times than I want to admit. But who I will never, ever, ever be in the story is the master. Step one in self-control is to be willfully, willingly, and joyfully under God's authority. To be a person who recognizes that I'm actually not in charge, that I'm actually a servant in the story. And he may put us in charge of some stuff, but again, not until we're ready. First Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. There's a big difference. There's a, a really big difference between pleasing your master and replacing your master. And I always want to be on the the pleasing side of the equation. The problem is when I live my life trying to be on the, I get to be the, the master side of the equation. The reason why self-control is such a common issue is because we have a common enemy and we often, so often, ignore the common good. Step number two in self-control is to understand your role. To understand your role. Like, that's where we are in the story, to know my place in it, that, that I'm always on the servant side of the equation, that I never get to be the master in the story. And, and this is a joy, because what we understand when we figure out our role in this greater story is that we get to be the sons and the daughters. We get to be the co-heirs with Christ to inherit much more than five bags of gold at the end of the day. We get to be the servants who take on an armor and literally go to battle on the winning team. And everybody in the room that's doing fantasy football right now, you understand how valuable it is to be on the winning team. Like, it matters. And this is who we are. When Jesus described to his disciples the way that they should pray, he did us a favor that we don't rightly acknowledge in our day and age. He literally invited people who know and follow him not to come to him and call him creator, although he is. Not to come and call him Lord, although he is. Not to come and call him master, and that's 
what he is, but we get to call him Father, our Father who is in heaven. When the great God of this universe wanted to teach us how we can come to him, how we can acknowledge him, how we can know him and spend time with him, he told us that we could call him Dad. That's who we are in the story. That's what our role is. When Paul wrote a letter to not the church in Galatia, but to the church in Ephesus, he concluded it with a big, strong reminder that they are in Ephesians chapter 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Know your role. We're invited to take on power because of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And he says, put on the full armor, like partial armor will not do. Put on the full armor so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you were to take that word, schemes, describing the enemy and his attacks, it's literally the Greek word methodeia. You heard method in there. You heard right. Because that's what it is. And his method has never, ever changed. He's never ever taken on a new strategy. And you want to know why? Because the strategy that he currently has continues to work time and time and time again in our life. That word literally, methodeia, means cunning arts, crafts, deceit, trickery. His methods have always been from day one to lie to us. And what he does is he forces us to act and react in some of the most despicable ways because we believe the lies. Tim Keller and John Anadzu write in the book Uncommon Ground that the Christian calling is to be shaped and reshaped into people whose every thought and action is characterized by faith, hope, and love, and then who speak and act in the world with humility, patience, and Tolerance, And if we're going to be a people who are characterized by faith, hope, and love, those who react in the world with humility, patience, and tolerance, then it embodies all of these things. And the only way we're ever going to be those things is if we submit to the authority of God and we understand what our role is in the story that he's writing. John Mark Comer, I've mentioned his book, Live No Lies, multiple times in this series because it's framed my understanding of what this challenge is. Because we basically, according to his words in ancient desert church fathers, have three big enemies. Like we've got the enemy who lies to us all the time and tricks us into going his way. But then we've also got the world, the cultural around us that's always bent away from Christ, that's always moving in the opposite direction, that's always going in a current that sweeps us away. It's like the riptide or the undertow that if you get too close to it, it sweeps you under and carries you off. We've got an enemy that's telling us lies, a world that is always massively going in that direction. And a flesh that's inside of us that just wants what the heart wants. It's just evil. And I'm automatically predisposed and bent towards believing convenient lies and going with all of popular culture in the direction that it heads, which is away from Jesus. So he writes, in the past... Some of you were alive during this day and age, and I don't want to make any eye contact to make you feel weird about yourself, but in the past, it was the responsibility of all people. Like, literally, like it was commonplace. It was a normally accepted responsibility to restrain from the desires of their flesh. 
Like that was just normal. Like whether or not people trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and walked in a way towards salvation, they were somehow going against the grain of popular culture by just being kind and nice and honest and pure because part of culture was kind of sort of going that way too. And it was the responsibility of people literally to govern themselves, to have self-control and to restrain from whatever those desires were because it was gonna mess up stuff for everybody. You just had to restrain and it was socially accepted now today. It's no longer the responsibility of all people to restrain themselves. It's the right of all people to follow the desires of their authentic selves. So that somehow going the way that culture goes or or doing whatever it is your flesh desires is now the socially accepted thing to do. And we dare anybody to question it because we're just being our authentic selves. We're just being true to who we are and who we want to be. The truth about self-control is that it's only a valid endeavor when I reckon all of the ramifications, all of the ways that it influences other people, all of the ways that it takes me down a notch in life, all of the ways that it pulls me away from Jesus and his ultimate goal and plan for my life. Step number three in self-control is to never go alone. But it says self-control, Nick. I know, but hold on with me for a second. Hebrews 10 says this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love. It's the first one, you know. And good deeds. That word deeds is the Greek word ergon, and it literally means the the stuff that we do and the actions that we have. You want to know where else that word is found? It's found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, which says the acts, the ergon, the deeds of the flesh are obvious. Like it's obvious the way that the world behaves. It's obvious the way that our sinful, selfish flesh desires. It's obvious when we do things our way, but the fruit of the Spirit, like that's different. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Like the, the acts, the deeds, the ergon of the flesh are obvious. It's debauchery, it's sin, it's desire, it's fits of rage like the ones you see sometimes in long lines and at Target. Like it's literally people behaving in any manner that they want to behave, daring the world to question anything about them. Right before Paul gave us this glorious list that we have hung, I'm going to miss seeing these up here. Right before Paul gave us this glorious list, He gave us a a way worse one of all the ways that we behave when we do things on our own. So in order to be a person, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, who exhibits all of these good deeds as opposed to the really rotten deeds, I have to be a person who's spurred that way by other people in my life. I have to recognize that I cannot do it alone in this life because I need protection. You do too. Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city whose walls are broken through, like a city who has been invaded by an enemy, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Without self-control, we're left defenseless against the enemy's schemes, his lies. We end up believing false truths and endorsing and following our own flesh and getting swept up in popular culture without Self-control, we will fall. And I want to say this morning, make no mistake, 
we can have guardrails in our lives. Like you can have limits and boundaries and patterns that you follow. Like you can set up guardrails. You can have stuff on your computer to make sure that you don't, like protection services to make sure that you and your kids don't see bad things. Like you can have filters on all of your, you can, you can set up systems in place to make you less likely to believe a lie, indulge your flesh and follow the way of the world. You can set up systems, but there is no protection. There is nothing that will protect you like your people. It was in a book called Find Your People, which is all about healthy Christian community, that author and speaker, Jenny Allen. I don't think we're related, but maybe, who knows? I should find out. I should do one of those DNA things or go on Ancestry.com and see. Who knows? It doesn't matter. Okay. She writes this. The last thing that you and I need is a friend group that does nothing more than cosign our stupidity. She says, if I'm about to careen off a cliff... And the only thing you choose to do is stand there cheering for me. We've got a problem. I don't need acceptance when I'm being a fool. I need help. And so do you. But we don't do that because John Mark Comer says that in this day and age, it's our right to go and do anything that we want to do and dare anybody to get in our face and ask us why we were being anything less than our authentic selves. Y'all, sometimes my authentic self is dumb. Sometimes my authentic self is not wise. And it's not at the center of God's perfect will for my life. She goes on to describe accountability. She says it's not just about sin avoidance or sin mitigation. It's so much more than that. It's not just about managing the sin in our life. It's about ergon, motivating us and inspiring us and spurring us on to do good deeds. She says it's about challenging and inspiring one another, telling a friend that she's underestimating her abilities, urging her to take a risk when it, when it seems like she's holding back instead of dreaming big for God. The best protection that you have in your life is the people that you allow into your life. So this could also be a sermon not just about self-control, about inviting the right people in your life to question you when your self-control is out of whack. It's not only protection, it's purpose. That's what Peter wrote. Hey, resist him, the enemy. Stand firm in faith because you know that the family of believers, the community of faith, the people of God throughout the world, they're undergoing the same kind of sufferings, the same kind of stuff that you are. If I know you've been there before, I'm more likely to listen to you. If I know that you've experienced the same pain, I'm more likely to accept your wisdom. If I know that you faced, and even if there are scars, beat the same challenges, I'm willing to follow your direction. If I'm going to be self-control, I need people in my life spurring me on to be like Jesus because at the end of the day, that's what this whole goal is. That's what fresh fruit means. And if I want to understand all of the ramifications of any sort of momentary lapse of self-control in my life, and I want to consider what that could mean for my future, here's the deal. When you have self-control, when you're under the authority of God, when you're surrounded by the right people who spur you on towards good things, towards these things and not worldly things, your future self will thank you. 
I wrote that down. My future self is going to thank me. I'm going to avoid this cookie so my pants will fit next week. There's the short game of self-control. But the longer one, the eternal one, is so much bigger and better when we sit back and realize that the choices that we make today, even the little ones, have a long-lasting, long-term effect on who we become in life. And there will be a moment where one day you look back and are grateful that you didn't fall off a cliff and are grateful that you had people around you to hold you back and spur you on and tell you the things that you needed to hear even though they're hard. Self-control is not you being in charge. It's about you submitting to the right thing in the right way. It's about making the wise choice. The beginning of this entire chapter of Galatians chapter 5, if you want to go back and study the entire thing, go there. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's why he died. That's why he forgave. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit to build these things inside of us so that we could be free. And then it says, stand firm. Then do not let yourselves be burdened again. Don't slip back into old patterns. Don't fall back into bad pits. Like instead, don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. All of this is so that we could be free. Comer writes this, it's by spirit, fruits of the spirit, and truth, word of God. It's by spirit and truth that we are transformed into the image of Jesus. But the reciprocal is also true. It's by isolation. You don't have the right people. It's by lies. You believe the enemy when he was chatting. It's by isolation and lies that were deformed into the image of the devil. Literally self-control is being under the right control. The control of Almighty God, the word of Almighty God, under the watch care of the people of God. The goal is that we would look like Jesus. And if we want to look like him, here's what it'll be. We'll be folks who love unconditionally, sacrificially, We'll be people who are full of joy even when the world is really wretched. We'll be people who somehow magically bring peace in this world in a way that the world is not even ready for and does not even understand. We'll be people who can be patient when nothing goes our way. We'll be those who are marked, whose character is described as goodness, whose demeanor is nothing but kindness who walk in faith when nobody else in the world walks in consistent faith who are gentle when the world is aggressive who literally walk in that kind of humility and who do it as a people who are under self-control undergirding each one of those fruits of the spirit because we're marked by love and we're saved by Jesus that's the goal and that's what all of this fresh fruit has been about that these things would mark our lives as we seek to leave a mark on the world that points people to Christ. That's the goal. And that's why we look at these things. Would you pray with me today? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the series. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together with these believers and, and be, be challenged and changed and held accountable by their lives. To be a people who 
spur each other on towards love and good deeds, towards attitudes of kindness and to a definition of faithfulness that the world has no idea what it is. Father, we understand that the problem with any of this is that the world has a definition of love. The world has an understanding of joy. The world has a picture of peace. They understand a propriety of patience and some sort of messed up image of goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and some sort of esteemed value of self-control. But it's only in you and by the power of your spirit that we live out the truth of those things. And so God, would you continue to change us and shape us into people who are marked by fruit and who bear it a hundredfold in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. That's the end of this episode on the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. Before you go, we invite you to think about who you could share this sermon with. Click the subscribe button so that you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Did you know Rolling Hills publishes other podcasts too? Check out the Making History and Parenting podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're thankful you spent some time with us today. We'll see you next time.